people who have built our faith upon something that's solid, on a rocky foundation rather than a sandy foundation. So the secret, what is the secret? Well, it's not this secret. This is Oprah's secret. It's the secret that basically means that if you just try hard enough, you're, everybody's going to be rich. And of course, we know that that's not really true. So the secret, what is the secret? We're not going to deal with it today, but we are going to do what? Lay the foundation. So let's talk about this this morning. Our nine-week series then is a study of Colossians, and we're going to do a book study of Colossians. We've been working through it for the last couple of weeks. In the past, I've been a little hesitant to do a book study because I'm not sure that in-depth book studies really go with the proclamation that's supposed to occur on Sunday morning because of just the challenges. One of the things that I think is a myth in our church and in our society, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this today, is that I don't think that someone could come and sit in a pew and simply listen to the, to the message and be discipled that way and to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. Why not? Well, first of all, sitting has never been a part of who the church is supposed to be to begin with. So just coming and sitting is not going to do it no matter what. The problem is, is that in order for you to really grow in Christ, you've got to do what? You've got to really explore your faith. You've got to really dig deep into the Bible. You've got to really go at it. You've got to want it. You've got to desire it. A lot of times we struggle with that desire because we uh, take complacency over a challenge. And so Paul does not want us to do that. Paul wants us to be challenged. And this is this very issue that he's dealing with here in the book of Colossians. So... Each of you have a Mad Lib. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, you have a Mad Lib in your bulletin. If you want to take it out just for a second, you will see that on, there are two sides. There is side A and side B. Side A is your Mad Lib. Side A is a two paragraphs with lots of blanks in it. You'll notice that the first couple of blanks have been filled in. Those are the blanks for the last couple of weeks. So if you haven't had a chance to be here or you just forgot your notes from last week, which is fine, um, those are already filled in for you. They have like little handwriting there. And so these are what we've done the last couple of weeks. You'll notice that when you get done, you get at the end of your Mad Lib, that you will actually have the structure of the book of Colossians spelled out for you. So when you go to work on Monday and people ask you, hey, what's the book of Colossians about? You could say, here it is. I can explain to you what the book of Colossians is about. Even more importantly, by understanding the structure, you'll get the main point of it. And when you go back and you read the book of Colossians and you study in detail, you will have the frame on which to hang all the details that Paul is going to talk about and things that you can learn if you go, like I have said in the past, to Berean and buy a book on the details for about $5.99. Now, so that's the Mad Lib. You can see it there. I also have it up there too, and it's already filled in for you a bit. Now, here's our strategy. Our strategy is this. We've talked about this issue of building a house, and in order to understand what Paul is doing, we want to build the house right along with him, rip apart the drywall, rip it out of there, get the wallpaper off the wall, pull it back, see the studs, see how the house was constructed to begin with. So the first week, we talked about clearing the ground, how basically Colossians, Paul starts by saying what? Hello, everybody. How's it going? I'm in jail. You're in Colossae. We've never met, but I want to be able to share with you what God is doing for you and what God wants to do in your life. So the first step in building a house is what? You get rid of all the shrubbery, you get rid of all the grass and the dirt and everything that's in the way, you clear the ground. And that's what Paul does by saying what? You're believers in Christ. You're believers in Christ and you're growing. That's the ground that we're starting with. That's the beginning point, that we recognize that we are believers who are growing in our faith. By the way, if you are not a believer growing your faith, please come back to BBC next week. But if you're not a believer growing your faith, the rest of the letter is not applicable to you at this point. You're still on how do I clear the ground so that I can build a house to begin with. So I want to be clear because a lot of times... 
people that are not believers, they'll come in, they'll get to the end of the message, they'll hear what Paul's saying at the end, they'll say, well, I don't like that, I don't want to do that, I don't, you know, I don't see that as being important to me. Well, it's because you haven't done the other things, you haven't done the beginning stuff yet. So please come back, please hear about what Christ has done for you, but just recognize the fact that this is more talking to people who have already made that faith commitment, they've already cleared the ground, they're on page one, they're on step one of what God wants. So the first week we talked about clearing the ground, Paul says what? Way to go, you're believers now, you're growing your faith, that's the beginning. Now last week, oh, I also mentioned how the fact that a lot of times we talk about the letter, Colossians, and instead of it being really a letter, that's probably not the best way to think of it, but think of it instead as a strategic argument that's meaty and that it goes into a great depth about what we as Christians are supposed to believe and as I mentioned in the past, we will look at the frame of the book here. So last week we talked about what? We talked about getting the vision. So we've cleared it. We've cleared the land in the first week, cleared the land. We're believers now. And then Paul does what? Takes out the plans, takes out those plans, right? Looks at them and says, hmm, okay, what are we going to build here? What are we going to build here? And so we talked about last week the fact that Well, I'll just read it to you. I'm praying for you that you will learn more about God so that you can honor God with your lives now that you're his kids. So here's the plan. The plan is, number one, we're believers. So what are we going to build here? We're going to build a way for us to know more about God so that we can honor him. That's what we're going to do because we're his kids now. So the plan is we want to do what? Honor God, glorify God. How are we going to do that? We grow closer in relationship with God. One of the ways that we do that is we learn more about God. It's not sufficient for us to be Christian dummies, right? We cannot be ignorant of what we believe in. I know even as I was preparing for the message today, there's such a disconnect between the way that our world tries to stereotype Christianity and the way it was in the very beginning. Because in the very beginning, a lot of the people that wrote the Bible and and the people that talked about the Bible in the first couple centuries, actually all the first 18 centuries of the Christian faith, some of the smartest men and women who have ever lived have been Christians. But in the last hundred years, especially in the West, the idea has been that Christians are dumb and that we get stereotyped as being dumb. And that's not true at all, but it's the way the world has attacked the church for the last couple hundred years. So don't fall in that trap. Don't fall in that trap at all. If you believe in Jesus, you're smarter than the average cookie to begin with. You know why? Because you're not just living for today. I mean, right there, that's the definition of wisdom, being focused on not just today, but also the future. If you go to any financial person, what will they say? Will they say, spend all your money immediately, or will they say, save some for the future? They'll tell you to save some for the future. And the same way, if you're just here today and you believe in Jesus, you're already smarter than the average person because you're looking forward to the future as well as to the present. So last week, we talked about getting the vision. Today, we're going to talk about laying the foundation, part one. Today, we're going to start the foundation prep. We're going to be putting that down today and ready for next week to pour the concrete. This right here, though, is the base of everything that we're going to build. If this gets messed up, everything gets messed up. Let me go through Paul's argument one more time. This is the base. This today is going to be, if you get this messed up, your house is going to be like this or like this. Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's, I should have had a picture of that up here. That's going to be your house if you get this part messed up. This is the most critical part of the letter and we're going to talk about today. Now, some of you may notice, too, that we're in week three, and we're only up to, like, verse 15. You know why that is? Anybody want to guess why that is? Because Paul front loads his explanation of what we're going to do at the beginning of the letter. He lays it all out at the beginning of the argument. And so chapter three and four are just him giving details 
and explanations and examples of what he's laid out. It's the wallpaper. It's the paintings that you hang on the wall. It's the paint that you put on the wall. All right, today let's go ahead and lay the foundation. Now, we're going to see what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Again, yes, we are bogged down in the first chapter, but that's okay. That's where Paul is building his argument. So let's open there to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. If you'd like, you can do it in your paper Bibles. You can do it on your iPhone or other smartphone or Droid, if you prefer. Actually, I prefer Droid, so forget the iPhone. Droid, how about that? Do open up to your Droid and your version, whatever it may be, doesn't matter. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look here, and I can't talk and turn at the same time. I struggle with that every week. Colossians chapter 1, here we go. Starting in verse 15 through 20, we are going to be looking at today only, as my math says, five verses, but at the same time, six. So at the same time, this is going to be some of the most difficult parts of Scripture as far as its depth. So if you wanted to jump into the deep end of the pool, the 12-foot deep end of the pool, then this is the part to jump into. Now, if you're like me, I don't like to wade in at the kiddie pool. I like to jump in the deep end. So if you're jumping the deep end, this is the passage right here that you want to look at. All right, let's look at it real quickly. This is what Paul says, Christ is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before, now let me just pause here because reading the Bible in English is awesome, reading it in whatever language you read it in is your first language is awesome. Sometimes though, at least in the English, there is a little bit of a distraction interrupt between what the original idea was in the original language and the English. And so this word visible and invisible is one of these words because it has several shades of meaning in the original language that doesn't carry over into our language today. We're going to develop that a little bit here this morning, and I'll explain that to you. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross." Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now, let me just say this before we begin. And I don't know how to say this in a way that will be uniform for all of you, but you got to understand the myth that we fight against all the time. Because when we look at this passage, it sounds very what? Traditional. And it sounds very highfalutin and important. But you have to understand that, that Paul if you look at in the original language, he was really speaking in the language of the people. He was speaking in a way that people back then would understand. He was actually speaking in very cultural ways about who Christ was. Sometimes people get mad if you talk about Jesus and you say, yo, Jesus did so-and-so. Jesus lived in the hood, or whatever the case may be, you know, the, the Word Made Fresh Bible. And some people, traditional people, they get really upset with that. But actually, I love that. You know why I love that? Is because that's the way the Bible really was written in the original language at the time. It was very culturally relevant. Do not be fooled because Jesus was using words that were not religious words in this passage. 
Paul was using words to describe Jesus that were not religious words in this passage. Paul was using words that were considered to be common about general philosophy or cultural norms of the time. He was speaking in a language of the culture of the time. I can't go into a lot of detail about it, but it was a very common way of speaking, and he used ideas that were important that people, that as they were tradesmen or as they were craftsmen or they were going around the world, they heard these words all the time. He was using that words. He was not using Christianese. Everybody know what Christianese is? You know, sort of the religious language that we use in church and that nobody outside the church understands? That's not what he was using at all. He was using pagan, secular terminology, Greek terminology, to talk about how Jesus was who he was. This is really important. Why? Because every time that we get caught up in using Christianese to describe Christ, we sort of miss the boat of the universal language that God was trying to use to be able to communicate his gospel to all people. Christ, Paul, the inspiration of the Bible was never designed to be an internal thing that we read and it was a secret passcode that we had to have the the secret handshake for and then we were good. It was designed to be communicated to the world in a way that they would understand. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Anytime you use an example to share the gospel with someone and use a common everyday metaphor, use it from pop music, use it from pop psychology, use it from pop philosophy, you're on good ground. You know why? That's what Paul did. That's what Paul did. Okay, so let's talk about this, and, um, and we'll see some of the examples here of how he builds this. All right, so here's the foundation. In order to do this, what is Paul saying? Listen, in order to do what? In order to, number one, we're starting out, we've cleared the ground, and we are believers in Christ. We're believers in Christ. We're ready to go. We have a vision of what? We're going to learn more about God. We're going to know more about God. We're going to be committed to God because we're his children now. So in order to do that, we have to do what? We have to lay the foundation. In order to do this, we have to do three things that we're going to talk about today. Number one is this, is that we're going to keep in mind that Jesus is God in flesh. This is absolutely positively the most significant part of the foundation that Paul is going to build here for the believers in Colossae, that Jesus is God in flesh. Now, one of the things to keep in mind as we talk about this issue is that, that Colossae was very much a polytheistic world. It was a world where lots of people were considered to be divine or considered to be God. The fact that the Christians would say that God was Jesus or Jesus was God was not very scary to the average person because they thought, well, Jesus is God. But so is Minerva God, so is Athena God, so is Zeus God. So, well, not, the, not, not necessarily Zeus God, because then you're starting to get into who? The king of the gods, right? But, so not Zeus, but Jesus could be like Hermes. Jesus could be like Ares. Jesus could be like these other gods that we've heard of, you know, sort of maybe even a household god, the Lares and Panates of, of the faith. So, so these, are, these are these kind of gods that, that Jesus could easily be. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Because Paul is saying that Jesus is the main God. He is the God. He is the Zeus. But way more than Zeus, he is the God who created this world and who came into this world to redeem this world. Now that's radical, and that's what we base our faith on. Now, Paul's primary foundation is the person and work of Jesus. Here's what, here's what Paul is trying to build here. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. So this is not some secondary God. This is not some generic God. This is not some God that you can simply mix in with your other religions. 
This is, gets into a big argument about why Paul wrote his letter to Colossians and why God inspired this particular letter. Paul wrote lots and lots and lots of letters, but he didn't just write the several that are in the Bible. He wrote many, many, many letters. And so as a result of writing many, many letters, only several of them were inspired by God. Only several of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why this one? Why this one of all the letters that he wrote? One of the reasons, we don't know 100%, but one of the reasons is because of the nature of the problem that the church in Colossus was dealing with. What was the problem probably that the church was dealing with? Scholars debate this all the time, but it was probably what? Seeing Jesus as just a part of the Christian life, but not as the whole of the Christian life. Let me say it another way. Being a Christian sometimes, worshiping Jesus some days, and just worshiping other things the other day. So, a typical Colossian could do what? Typical Colossian, let's say they were, say, take the example from the book of Acts, they were a silversmith who made their living building silver idols to people and doing silver work and jewelry for, the, for ladies and stuff like that. So on Sunday, they might come to church, they might say, yes, I worship this Jesus, and then on Monday through Friday, they're doing what? Worshiping something else. They're just not living for God. They're just building idols for other people. No big deal, because that's their job. The big problem in Colossae at the time was people who believed Jesus in part, but did other things in part too. Can you build a house where the foundation is half concrete and half sand? Well, you can, but it makes for a miserable house. Am I right? It makes for a miserable house. In fact, if you don't believe me, go buy some land, go hire a contractor and hire a 12-year-old kid and have the contractor do half the foundation in, in, in cement, concrete, and have the kid pour some sand from his sandbox on there and see how it goes. What do you think? Is it going to be successful? No, it's not going to be successful. You're going to have the ultimate leaning tower of San Jose or leaning house of, hey, you might be able to charge admission, right? If the kid does a bad enough job, the house will be leaning over. Hey, when I was a kid, they used to have the fun house, right? And the house would lean. Have you all ever been in that before? Have you been in the house that leans in the fun house? That's fun to visit, but would you want to live like that? You can't even walk in it very well. No. But the people in Colossae live their lives that way. And I submit to you this morning that the average churchgoer does the same thing. Their life is, you know, like this because they're doing what? Because some days of the week they're worshiping Jesus and the other days of the week they're worshiping themselves, they're worshiping fame, they're worshiping success, they're worshiping money, they're worshiping anything other than God. But Paul here is saying that, listen, if we want to make sure that our house is built, we want to make sure that because we are believers now and because we know that God loves us and is committed to us and we are his children, that if we want to see that to come to fruition, we want to see that be a reality in our lives, that we must do what? that we must have the most solid foundation possible. And that, that primary foundation must be the person and work of Christ. Now, when I say the person and work of Christ, what do I mean? I mean who Christ is and what he's done for us. Just very simply this morning, because we don't have a lot of time to deal with it, who is Jesus? He is fully God, fully man who came into the world, fully God himself to do what? His work to be a sacrifice for us so that we may have eternal life so that we may have abundant life here on earth, that he gave himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. This is fundamental to who we are as Christians. 
It is easy for us to skip over this part, to say, well, this is the religious part. This is the, the part I don't like. This is the part, you know, Jesus having to die. It's kind of gross and, and sick, and, you know, it's kind of weird. And I saw The Passion by Mel Gibson, and, you know, it's a lot of blood. And, I, you know, I just, I just want to be a good person. But being a good person has nothing to do with the person and work of Christ. Can I say that again so that we're all on the same page? Being a good person has nothing to do with the person and work of Christ. Being a godly person has everything to do with the person and work of Christ. And there's a difference. Why? Because good is culturally defined. Good is culturally defined. We define good based upon what our culture says, but the culture in Colossae would have defined lots of things good as being very different than us. And so if we want to look at what it means of who we are in Christ and it is the person and work of Christ that makes all the difference in our lives. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. Christ must be in every part of our faith. There can be no part of our faith that is not taken over by Jesus. If there's any part of our faith that's not taken over by Jesus, it is not real faith. It is not complete faith. It is fake faith. One of the things that was happening in Colossae is that a lot of people were coming in from a lot of different backgrounds. They had different backgrounds, not unlike San Jose. They came from different religions and different traditions. And their acceptance of the gospel was different because they came from those different traditions. Some people accepted Christ, meaning that, okay, well, I know that he probably was from God. Some people accepted him as being a new God who was overall, perhaps, or, or maybe at least shared responsibilities to other gods. They came from a variety of different backgrounds. Paul is saying here, listen, I understand you come from a variety of different backgrounds, which is why I'm using popular philosophical, pop philosophy, pop psychology words here to try to explain to you that all those backgrounds are basically incorrect. They have missed the point of who Christ is. Christ is the ultimate God who has come into the world in human form, that he is God himself. He is not a God, part God, some God, little bit God, partially God, to a certain degree God. He is fully and completely God who has come into our world, taken on human flesh to be a sacrifice on our behalf. Christ must be a part of our faith. Now, what does that mean real quickly on a day-to-day -day basis? What does it mean that Christ must be a part of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, on Monday, when we get up and go to work, how can Christ be a part of our lives then? Because Christ is not a part of our lives. Our boss and our job and our commute and our struggles and our issues of putting food on the table, those are our gods on Monday, are they not? But this is what Paul's getting to. Because those are not supposed to be your gods. Christ is your God. Christ is your God. He is the one who has sacrificed for you which, by the way, flips the whole idea on its head because in the ancient world, what did people do? Even Jewish people, what did they do and get confused with faith in the real God? They did what? They made sacrifices. The Romans made sacrifices. The Greeks made sacrifices. Everybody sacrificed. It was very common. We forget, we think sometimes we read the Old Testament, we read just one narrow version of it. And we forget that the Greeks and Romans did the same thing. They sacrificed too. And they understood that you sacrifice for a God so that the God will do what you want. But Christ did what? Christ, as God himself, sacrificed for us to show real love. And that that sacrifice is supposed to not be a Sunday thing or an occasional thing, but supposed to be a complete sacrifice on our behalf. It's supposed to be something that we are allied to every single day. How does Christ work on Monday? That's the eternal question. Well, I submit to you that there are several problems with that thought. 
Number one problem, we'll talk about number two in a minute, but let me give you number one right now. Number one is this. Let me just read what Paul says. Christ is the visible image of visible. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. He is bigger than Zeus. He is the God that we are able to worship. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms of earth. He made things we can see and the things we can't see, such as all this stuff. Everything was created through him and for him. Who created work? Who created jobs? Who created success? God created that. That's what the Bible's saying here. It's not just saying that he created the world, but he created everything that exists in our world. Did man come up with the idea of work? No. Who put man to work first? God did. Name the animals, he said to Adam. These are God's ideas. We take these ideas and use these ideas for our own what? Pleasure and benefit. But God doesn't want it to be like that. God wants to have everything that he has created to be transformed by us who are his children. What should work be? Should work be our allegiance to someone else? No, our work should be our allegiance to God. We should work because God asks us to work, not because some boss asks us to work. Now, we honor God by doing what? Honoring our employer. We do. But at the same time, we go to work in the morning. We do the things Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday because we honor God in that. We get up in the morning and instead of saying, oh, God, I got to go to work, we say, God, I'm going to go to work for you. I'm going to go to work for you. Why? Because you're asking me to do this. You're asking me to live my life, to honor you. And it doesn't matter whether I'm shopping at Safeway. It doesn't matter whether I'm going to work. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I go to the movies. I'm going to do that to honor you. Where do we run into problems? When we don't honor God with those things. We go to the movies and we watch something crazy, right? And that is honor God. And we talk about that. But why does it honor him? Why? Because he created those things to glorify himself. And we use it to glorify what? Ourselves. So we have to have a radical transformation in our thinking. And this is what Paul is advocating here. That's why he's sweeping it all away, because he's saying, look, if you're going to put down a foundation and call yourself a Christian, then do it in the right way. If you're going to call yourself a Christian and you're going to put down a foundation, put down something worthwhile. Don't put down something halfway that's sort of Christian. Put down something that's going to be Christ-focused throughout your entire life. Your whole life is dedicated to Christ. Jesus was the message of God to the people. You know, it's interesting here because we read in this passage, we read Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. And this is what I was talking about, the language. We lose a little bit. What does it say in John 1? It says Jesus was the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and so we talk about Jesus being the Word of God. How many of you never heard of the idea Jesus was the Word of God? We've all heard that, right? But of course... When we read this, we see, well, okay, so the visible image of God. Well, here's the cool thing. Paul's actually just taking what John says and using a different metaphor to mean the same thing. By the way, what does it mean that Jesus is the word of God? Does it mean he's a word? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means he is the message, the revelation. He is what God wants you to know about himself. That's what it means. You know, in the Middle Ages, Somebody translated, instead of Jesus was the word there in the Bible, translated it, and they were doing the, moving from Greek to Latin, translated it as the message. And people got, oh, wow, no, you can't do that. They were all upset. But he, then they're like, but this is the right, this is the, what it really means. And we know that now that this guy was right. 
He was right when he translated that, because that's what it means. But we're still scared to say message. Oh, there's a whole Bible version called the message. If you've been to Berean, you know it's called the message, because that's what it means. That's probably the best word in English for what it means. You could say revelation, but then people think of what? The, the end book of the Bible, and that's not what that means either, but that's another subject for another time. So the message of God. When, 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 when Paul says here that Christ is the visible image, he actually means the icon of God, that this is the way that we see and visualize God, that God is not visible, but visible, listen to what they're saying, using the language of the ancient world, visible means knowable. When you view someone, you know them. God is not knowable by himself because God is up there and we are down here and we cannot climb up to heaven and know God. We cannot run experiments on God. But we know God because what? Christ is the knowable part of God. He is the image, the icon that we can see. He is the message, the revelation that we hear That's how we know God. He is who we see. He is who we hear. He is who we touch. John, hearing, right? The message of God. Paul, he is the image, what we see of God. And you could go Thomas, touch, because Thomas tried to touch him. And so those are the ways that we know God. See, hear, touch. And of course, the Old Testament says what? Taste and know that God is good. So taste is in there too. And smell also, if you count the sacrifice in the Old Testament. So the whole point of this is, listen, God wants to be known by us, which is why all those senses are engaged in knowing. You know what's awesome? Think about the senses just for a second. Think about the senses. If you go to a store that has, what's your favorite store that smells good? You know, like I like going to a bread store because it smells really good. You smell... Smell that fresh bread or going to a donut or a candy store and you smell the, the sweetness in the air, right? And it smells good. And you know, you know when you walk in those stores what it is, right? You could close your eyes and you could walk into a bread restaurant or something where they have fresh bread. Just smell and you know that it's bread that's baking. Christ is the way that we know God because when we see him and we touch him and we hear his message, we get God. We get God. And the cool thing about all this, what God has done, by sending Jesus as the get God part, the message, the visible image of the invisible God, is because there's no way for us to ever know God, but yet God makes himself known to people. God makes himself known to people. God shows himself. He puts those things that we can tell by our senses out there so that we can know God. Jesus was the message to people. So if we want to connect with God... We've got to do what? We've got to do it the way that God provided. You know, we are on one place. We're on planet Earth. God is in another place. He's in heaven. Listen, the Greeks understood this. The Romans understood this. The Persians understood this. The Jews understood this. They all understand this. You understand this today. Listen, secular atheistic scientists understand. They talk about the gap between God, that that he exists, and us. Everybody gets that gap. That's intuitive. We understand that. We know that. What makes Christ who he is? Because he bridged that gap. And we can taste and see and know and see and hear and see that Christ is himself God and know about God through Christ. So if you want to build the foundation of your life on God, here's what Paul's hinting at here, it must be on Christ. Why? Because any other version of God does not work. If you say, well, you know, I believe God loves every single person. Okay, 
fine. I believe God is this. I believe God is that. I believe God is like the Easter Bunny. I believe God is like Santa Claus. Hey, you can believe those things. Sure. But it's not the message of Christ. And so when you believe that, you're putting sand in your concrete. Actually, sand does go in concrete. But you're putting a sand area in your concrete and you're causing your house to do what? Be wobbly. Let me say it another way. Christ is the foundation of our lives. And anything that we believe about God that does not come through Christ is what? False foundation for our lives. But listen, Christians in the West, we watch TV all the time and we're told over and over again how God is. But that God on TV is not the God of the Bible. Let me warn you. And I'm not anti-TV or anti-movies. I mean, I like movies. But the God that's oftentimes portrayed in our media is not the God of the Bible at all. And if you believe in that God, you are not believing in the God of the Bible. Paul wants the Colossians to understand you cannot mix other conceptions of God in with Christ because if you've done, you've rejected the revelation, the message of God for something that is a message of men trying to understand God. Men can't understand God. Women cannot understand God. Only God can understand God. And only God can reveal the part that he wants to communicate to us to people. That's it. You will never in your own... Look, they took Einstein's brain out of his head and stuck it in a jar, hoping one day that they would be able to rev it up again and let him solve the mysteries of the universe. No lie. Okay? They did the same thing for Ted Williams. I don't know how hitting the baseball is going to change society. But, you know, he's a good hitter. Okay, good. But, you know, you could take... All that brain power, and you'll never understand God. Only Jesus is a connection. I'm running out of time. Let me just go, because there's so much meat here. The supreme being, that Christ is not just only this mediator. He's not only God in the flesh. He's also the supreme being as well. He made everything. He created everything. He is the ruler of the universe. Jesus was not simply a prophet or philosopher. We hear that all the time in our society. You know, Jesus was a prophet. He was a philosopher. He was a peasant revolutionary. But these are not the things that Paul is trying to hit on here. He is specifically using language of the almighty God. He is specifically using language of this Zeus idea that Christ is number one among gods. If you were a Greek or Roman and you believed in Zeus... You got it. You got what Paul was saying. Paul's saying, listen, there is none of that. There is Jesus, and he is over everything. He not just created it. He was involved in the creation of it. He did it himself. There is no getting around this fact here. Some people try to minimize the Bible and say, well, Jesus was a good guy, and he served God. No, no, no. These are the kind of passages that are red meat directly speaking towards Christ as being he-man, master of the universe, being the one who created the universe. Jesus was not simply a prophet or a philosopher. And also, Jesus is intimately involved in our lives, too. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So he, everything was created through him and for him. This idea here is that Christ is intimately involved in everything. Christ is not only fully God, but as the God that we are able to also know, then he wants to be involved. Listen, in the ancient world, people, whether they were Jewish, Greek, Roman, or whatever, they viewed God as what? Unknowable, invisible. He's out there. He's not able to be seen or understood. The creator God had nothing to do. By the way, 
one of the main pop philosophy, the Oprah of the day, if I can say it that way, he believed that there was actually God who created everything, and then there was a hierarchy of little gods underneath him who did the things that he didn't want to get his hands dirty with. There was this hierarchy of gods. So when something bad happened to you, it was the little gods that screwed it up for everyone. But the big God, he was cool. He was good because he was the creator God, and then you had these little gods who messed everything up. That was the Oprah philosophy of the day, if I can say it that way. That was the biggest mouthpiece, biggest TV personality of the day. But unfortunately, Paul is taking a gun and just shooting right through that, being baloney. You know why? It's not that way. That Jesus, there is no hierarchy of gods. Jesus is the one and true only God. He created it, he was there, and now he's involved in it. He's all three. He not just created it, he doesn't just manage it, but he is intimately involved in everything that goes on. Why is God intimately involved in our lives? Does God care about what we do on Monday if we make silver idols to pagan worship? Does God care? Absolutely he does, because he just didn't create the silver. He just didn't create your hands. He didn't just create the concept of work. He wants to be involved in your life, too. And he wants that life to be dedicated to him, which comes from the whole idea God is a jealous God. It doesn't mean weird or psycho. It just means he loves you and he's involved in your life. And everything that you think is yours, it's really his to begin with. You think you came up with this? No. You know, I like one person said, man doesn't invent anything. Man discovers that which God already knows could exist. Jesus is also, hey, crazy, the Supreme Church member too. Wow. Jesus is like Mr. Church. But we're going to talk about why that is in a second. The Bible here says, Paul says, listen, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. A lot of times, some of your Bible versions will say he is like the first and the firstborn. And we think, whoa, wait a minute. You know, that's weird because why are we saying Jesus is firstborn? That makes him like secondary. But again, it's, a, it's an idea of position. Understand that in the ancient world that people that were firstborn were considered, they were, the, they were the ones. If you were the firstborn son, you had control over everything. You were the man. If you were child number seven, forget it. You got the scraps off the table. Actually, if you were child number two, you also got the what? Scraps off the table. The, the firstborn son was the key to everything. So he's a supreme church member too. Listen, God, Christ is first in the gathering of God's people. This is the problem that comes into play because when we say that Christ is the head of the church, what do we think? We think of some guy in a robe that walks around, leads a procession through a big fancy building. This is what we think of, but this is not what it is. You cannot be a part of Christ without being part of the church. Let me say this again. You cannot be part of Christ without being part of the church. A lot of times people I meet, they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian, yeah, but I don't go to church. Now, going to church, let's just cut that out of the conversation. Throw it over here for a second. You cannot be a part of Christ if you're not part of the church. Why? Because Christ is the church. That's like saying, I want Christ's arms and legs, but not his hands and feet. Does it make any sense? You can't be a part of Christ without being part of the church. Our foundation is taking part in the life of the church. This is not what the Bible means by church. This is not a church, not in the definition of the word of God. This, however, is church. What is Christ saying? Christ is saying, listen, if you want to be a part of me, you have to be a part of that. If you're not a part of that, you're not a part of me because I am the church. I am the one who created the church and I am the one, and by the way, let's not even use the word church here because we get confused. It doesn't say church. There's no word church in the Bible. 
It's the gathering of the people of God. That's what it is. By the way, does the Bible use the word church in a religious sense? No. It actually says the assembly, as in the civil assembly. The assembly as when the Greeks would decide on a law for their town, they would get together, go together, and they would fight, and they would argue, and they would say, well, I think we should pass this law. Almost like parliament or congress would be a closer word in English than church for the original idea here. Congress. Wow. Congress is accessible. Oh, I didn't not supposed to say that, right? <laughs> this is the redeemed group of people. This is the redeemed group of people who get together and do what? Live their lives for civil authority? No. Live their lives for Jesus. Listen, Christ is the head of that assembly. He is the president of it. He is in charge of it, and he wants us to be involved with it. So to be a part of his church, you must be involved with that. Listen, let's just wrap up here so that we're all on the same page. Here's what happens. First week, Paul says, hey, everybody, I'm Paul. How's it going? Let's clear the area. Let's get a starting place. Here we go. Here's the area clear. We are believers in Jesus, and we're growing. All right. Good job. Way to go. You're smart. You're wise. Great. We cleared the area. Now we're going to get a vision. What's the vision that we're going to have? We want to grow in knowledge of God. We want to learn more about him so that we can honor him with our lives. If we don't understand God, we cannot honor him. If we don't understand God, we cannot glorify him. And then guess what the foundation is? After we get to clear the area, look at the plans, we lay the most important foundation, which is we know that Christ is fully God himself. That Christ is the big God, not the little God, but the big God who rules the universe and who is in charge of everything. But he's not only up there, but he's also down here involved in our lives as well. And that we turn over our lives to Christ, not just our Sundays, not just our Mondays, but every single day. Why? Because Christ is the church. He is that. He's not the fancy building. The building has nothing to do with Jesus. The building could burn down and it has nothing to do with Jesus. It's because the people of God are gathered together as Christ, being his hands, his feet to the world. And that's why he's a part of that. And that's who we're supposed to be. That's it. Let's pray.